from the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back and happy October, Justin. I know. I'm excited. This is our favorite time of the year. What horror hounds wait for every year. And, um, uh, you know, we said this last season, uh, though we try not to go too crazy with the horror films, you know, we pepper one in throughout because we love talking about all kinds of movies. Don't get us wrong. We, We love all kinds of movies, but we are big fans of the horror genre. And October, we did this last season where we do uh horror movies pretty much the, the whole month uh so we'll have three uh, episodes coming out in october all of which will be horror movies or horror themed related uh we'll do a special episode uh i think it's a tuesday before halloween mm-hmm. that'll be a fun one we got something really fun planned yeah but f- to kick this off our first horror film for uh the month of october is Candyman from 1992 and this is one I'm really excited that we that we chose because, you know, this is one of those that I think is uh, one of the best of the horror films that came out in the 90s. And it has a lot of elements that, that you know, I appreciate. You know, there's a little bit of the slasher genre in here. There's some supernatural stuff. Um, but it also kind of has a little bit of like kind of the prestige that like a movie like Silence of the Lambs has, you know, where you have this sort of character development happening early on and you kind of can grow to really like um, get worried about the central character. This isn't sort of like a hack and slash type movie. It's funny how the perception that I have watching this movie now, how it differs from when I watched it as a kid because it terrified the hell out of me when I was a kid. Candyman was so, uh, I mean, Tony Todd, the actor is so overwhelming and just daunting and it was just terrifying on the surface. But as an adult, this movie is so loaded and such a great film in general. And yes, it is a horror movie. It has all of these elements, um, you know, that other horror movies have. But it kind of, it's a different twist on it. And it just makes it so much more of a enlightened horror movie. And I don't know about you, but do you, um, do you cry? At the end of this movie, or have you in the past ever? I've never cried at the end of Candyman. Really? I can't say that I have, but it is. But it does have an you know an emotional. <laughs> it's emotional. Ending. You know, I, I do. I do appreciate. I mean, the final scene. I'm not crying at right, that. No, I'm, yeah, I'm like totally, cheering yeah, at that. Yeah. But like, bef- yeah. But yeah, I, th- I think this was like a, a great movie to kick off October with because it, it's a movie where it's like I feel like if you're not if you're kind of on the fence with horror movies, mm-hmm. like you could watch Candyman. Oh yeah. You know. It's it's it it's it's borderline. Yeah, I mean, any any scary movie or horror movie or whatever you want to call it is going to have blood in it. Yeah, most likely. This one is so much more story driven than it just going for like the cheap, you know. Yeah, kind and it's of not, yeah, yeah, the cheap sort trick. of camp type movie, which I love. Those, love, yeah, love but, it. But <laughs> um, this one has like a little bit more. Uh, it's like a classier movie, you know, all the way for the way it's Classy. shot, the way it's acted, the way it's scored, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll talk about. All right. So speaking of that, what exactly are the topics that we're going to cover with talking about Candyman? 
Well, we'll probably kick this off first with a little bit of a history lesson because the majority of Candyman takes place at the time was a real housing project in the city of Chicago called Cabrini Green. So we'll do a little history of Cabrini Green because there's a lot about the history sort of is like important to the plot of the movie because uh, this film does deal with race relations in America. The, yeah. You know, there's a lot going on in this movie. This is a very intelligent film, and I think that it does function as a horror movie, but there's, you know, we'll talk a little bit about that, how this movie is not your standard horror movie. There's a lot of elements going on, and there's a lot happening in the movie. Um, we'll also talk about the actors, because uh, Tony Todd and Virginia Madsen really both play these uh, characters that aren't necessarily protagonists or antagonists. Mm -hmm. They almost have this like very like symbiotic relationship and they're like working together. And I think it really makes the, uh, the film also unique. Makes it a lot deeper. It's kind of like the, uh, Freddie and Nancy thing in nightmare on Elm street, but it completely deepens that type of relationship. Yeah. This movie is very like, has a very nightmare on Elm street vibe going on. It does. But again, yeah, going a little bit deeper on this. There's some pretty cool stuff with the, the production of this film. You know, we'll talk a little bit about that. Some of the practical effects that they used, uh, some of the acting techniques that they used. It's pretty crazy. The, 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 all the bee stuff that they used in this, uh, actual bees, like, you know, buzzing bees. We'll talk a little bit about the, the music because this is, a has a really interesting and I think really amazing score that's kind of different from your typical horror movie score. So yeah, we'll have a good discussion on Candyman. Um, After that, we'll get into our picks of the week. Uh, I went with, we kept it on the Clyde Barker front for this episode. I'm glad we did. um, I went with his uh, third and so far final directorial effort, which was 1995's Lord of Illusions which is a pretty cool little movie. I I've, I had, I'd actually was a movie that I had not seen when it came out, so this was pretty new to me. I watched it two or three times over the last few weeks and got a kick out of it. I steered clear of it just because of like magician stuff really never appealed to me. But upon watching it, man, it happened with my pick of the week too. I, I was wrong about steering clear of Lord of Illusions. I really enjoyed it. And I had always steered clear of the one that I chose, uh, which was Clive Barker's Nightbreed from 1990, and that's man, that's a that's a cool movie. I really, <laughs> really fun. It's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, it's like a it's a horror movie, but and I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's not scary. Yeah, no, you it's, know? it's 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 a fascinating yeah. movie. It's yeah. got some interesting characters. I'm glad you picked that one. That was one I was considering, but then uh, when you were leaning toward Nightbreed, I I realized I'd never seen Lord of Illusions, and I was like, you know what, I'm gonna check this out. Yeah. If I like it, I'm yeah. gonna go for it. So. Those are our picks of the week. As always, we'll round things out with the Murray moments. But uh, before we go to a clip, uh, Lindsay, can you give us the lowdown on what is the what's Candyman about? What is um, Candyman? It's not just an urban legend tale. It is not. It, it, it it's its own urban legend wrapped in multiple urban legends. So Candyman starts out with two Chicago graduate students who are deep into their thesis research on urban legends. Along the way, they become fascinated, one in particular named Helen, played by Virginia Madsen. Uh, She becomes kind of enthralled with the local mythical urban legend known as Candyman, who haunts the neighborhood of Cabrini Green that is known to be pretty violent. 
and her attempt to solve the mystery of Candyman succeed in the writing of the thesis paper and maybe, you know, seeking a thrill along the way, Candyman frames Helen for murders in order to push her into madness so she'll come into his netherworld, right? It's pretty much pretty much broken down what's going on. It's pretty accurate, yeah. She may or may not be the reincarnated soul of the love of when he when he was a mortal soul. But uh, I'm sure we'll probably get into that when we talk about more about the plot. All right, we'll go to a clip from Candyman. We'll come back. We'll talk about it. Candyman was the son of a slave. His father had amassed a considerable fortune from designing a device for the mass producing of shoes after the Civil War. Candyman had been sent to all the best schools and had grown up in polite society. He had a prodigious talent as an artist and was much sought after when it came to the documenting of one's wealth and position in society in a portrait. Well, it was in this latter capacity that he was commissioned by a wealthy landowner to capture his daughter's virginal beauty. Well, of course, they fell deeply in love and she became pregnant. Hm. Poor Candyman. Father executed a terrible revenge. He paid a pack of brutal hooligans to do the deed. They chased Candyman through the town to Cabrini Green, where they proceeded to saw off his right hand with a rusty blade. But no one came to his aid. But this was just the beginning of his ordeal. Nearby, there was an apiary, dozens of hives filled with hungry bees. They smashed the hives and stole the honeycomb smeared it over his prone, naked body. Candyman was stung to death by the bees. They burnt his body on a giant pyre and then scattered his ashes over Cabrini Green. So getting into this thing, I wanted to give like a, a, a little background first. Um, you know, we're going to get into talking about Cabrini Green because that's where the majority of this movie takes place. Um, but that wasn't the original setting for this film. Uh, this movie has always kind of been presented of like, you know, a mi- from the mind of Clive Barker. Mm-hmm. And it was adapted from Clive Barker's short story, The Forbidden. But his actual short story um, did not take place in America. It took place in Liverpool and a lot of the themes in that were kind of like dealt with uh, classism. But uh, Bernard Rose, uh, when he adapted the screenplay, he also directed the film Candyman. He changed the setting to America to also deal with classism, but also to deal with racism in America and uh, move the location of the movie from sort of the slums of Liverpool to the housing projects of the inner city of Chicago. And I really think that was just a great idea to change locations, setting the story in Cabrini Green, and they actually shot there, certainly for American audiences, a more visceral uh, view and taps into 
uh, other fears, not just as supernatural that, that, that people have, you know, living in the city. And when Bernard Rose said that he went to Chicago to kind of scope out areas and when he got to Cabrini Green, which was an area that had come to be known. And I think in the early nineties was when it, when the violence and crime that happened in that area was really at the height. He said that as soon as he got into that area, you could just feel the fear and that for a horror movie, yes, you need to create atmosphere and that sort of thing. But if you have an atmosphere that already the fear just is already existing, I mean, you're kind of starting from a movie making standpoint, you're already starting at a plus. You know, this was in a lot of ways sold as like a slasher movie. And I think at its core has a lot of elements of like the slasher genre, but you're taking a slasher genre way outside of the camps and the the woods yeah. and all these places that, you know, th- this is a story that you used to normally see and setting it in the very, very specific city in a very specific section of the city and making that the location of it part of you know a big part of the story and I really love it when movies do that it gets me more involved in it and it did make me want to research the the history of the movie and in the location and that's you know like I said getting into Cabrini Green like uh, what you know why why did they choose this location and why does it work and and there's a lot of elements of the history of Cabrini Green that worked its way into the plot of this movie. And quick real-life connection to Candyman here before we get into the history of Cabrini Green. One of the first stories that Helen investigates is a tale of a woman named Ruthie Jean who Candyman supposedly kills by entering through her bathroom cabinet. You know, like what would be situated over your sink. Helen attempts to call Candyman this way later in the film and a similar scene happens at the end of the movie. Well, actually, in reality, these housing projects in Cabrini Green and all around Chicago in constructing these buildings... Um, there was this no divider between apartments. So there was an actual problem with people breaking into apartments via these bathroom cabinets, which is so unbelievably unnerving. And she may be called Ruthie Jean and Candyman, but there was a very tragic story of a woman named Ruthie Marie McCoy, who was murdered by a person or persons entering through her bathroom cabinet. Like Ruthie Jean and Candyman, she calls the police and says, someone's coming through my walls. While the real Ruthie Marie McCoy says something similar to that, like someone throwed down the cabinet and then she was later murdered. Police did nothing to investigate both the real and fictional realities. And the story concludes with her being found days later. And finally, in Candyman, the neighbor who recounts the story is named Anne Marie McCoy, another way that Bernard Rose indirectly is saying this is a clear reference to the actual story of Ruthie Marie McCoy. It makes the whole mirror thing even all the more creepy in Candyman. The fact that it actually happened and, yeah, wasn't just to this woman, but, yeah, happened a lot. And there were a lot of things that were happening in the early 90s as far as racial relations that were palpable and to set a movie in this specific neighborhood that was um, that was Cabrini Green that was finally demolished in its entirety in 2011 which was such an interesting like creation because this this housing project basically existed a few blocks like I don't know three three or four blocks away from the wealthiest neighborhood in Chicago which is Gold Coast 
It's like if you if you're familiar with Chicago, Cabrini Green was just a few blocks west of the lake, Gold Coast, a little south of Old Town and east of Wicker Park. So just basically right in the thick of it. And this was a neighborhood that started out in the 40s and built with this noble idea of kind of integrating people of all different backgrounds. And it, I mean, in theory, awesome idea. Cut to 20 years later, and there's this lawsuit that, um, that comes about that's saying that, that the housing project is being kind of discriminatory and who it chooses to let inhabit there. So it's kind of become this segregated thing. And it kind of devolves into a violent uh, neighborhood that has become in disrepair and there's not exactly you know a building manager multiple building managers that are taking care of it and the Chicago Housing Association is kind of distancing itself from that or at least maybe not distancing itself but not really taking care of it as it as it should yeah and the idea changed from like this mix income and trying to integrate people to basically segregating where it was you know by the mid to late 60s it was mainly like poor african-american people living in uh you know one section like you said four blocks away from like some of the richest parts of chicago yeah and the in the the violence that was happening was you know one or two percent of the people that actually live there Everyone else was like family, and I am fairly certain it was predominantly single moms because also marriage was like kind of at the time like not really encouraged because you got less benefits. So you have these single parent families, and I think also the population was mostly children. So you have this violent community that's this violence is being perpetuated by a very, very small number of people and they're not getting the help that they need from law enforcement or yeah. from the city of Chicago. And at the time, and by the 90s, by the time they went into film Candyman, Cabrini Green had already had a reputation. I think in the U.S. is like one of the more violent yeah. in horrible places that someone could live where it was not talked about like families living there, people just struggling, trying to make it a story was always spun, you know, it was like, don't go down there. That's where you're going to get shot. Yeah. And I think that's where Candyman is like, I don't consider it like this, like super politically driven film, but it, it's, it does definitely doesn't shy away from the idea um, that that's the story that was being represented of Cabrini Green. Mm-hmm. And they kind of touch on it a little bit in the movie. You know, they say, like, we well, don't want to go down there unless you want to get shot. But then when they get there, they come to realize, you know, there are families. I mean, there's certainly yeah. crime there, and there's certainly people that are there waiting to shoot you or rob you, but there's also families struggling. Not everybody there is a criminal, you know. And so it sort of tries to paint a view a realistic view of like what goes on in inner city neighborhoods where people are struggling and they they have no way to get out from underneath this because there's so much stress and so much pressure and from a person who lives eight blocks away in a in a chicago Mm high-rise and they have a one million dollar condo uh, to them, this is a that just going driving through the neighborhood is a horror story, much less living it. And I think that's a little bit of like what Candyman kind of 
portrays in a little bit that fear of white flight, you know, like all the white people moved out because they were scared of uh, black people moving in and then, you know, white people being scared to just go across the street, even though, and it's easier to, for the white people to paint a picture in their minds of like, oh, well, it's like this war zone over there instead of actually um, feeling bad about the fact that there's people living in desperate poverty and they're trying to raise their family. They're trying to do exactly what you're trying to do, yeah. but they just don't have the means and they have the everyday stressors of living in a place that you're scared to just drive through in your car really fast yeah. when your windows rolled up. And some of the condos that were a little bit further west that technically would have been in Cabrini Green ended up being sold and that's kind of what we see in Candyman is where Virginia Madsen's Helen character lives those condos were were revamped and sold at a much higher price it became very apparent where the importance for this housing project how it just collapsed in on itself and that's what I like about Candyman I don't find it to be this like very heavy-handed like political film it's not um you know it's very much like a horror movie but but I do think that like lengths were were made to work that into the script and I do know that Bernard Rose when when he adapted the script you know they sent the script to the NAACP to make sure because the the quote-unquote villain of the movie Candyman played by Tony Todd is this African-American character and Bernard Rose was like you know we're setting this movie uh in the in the housing projects of Chicago and in race you know, racism does play a part in the story of Candyman and how he, you know, evolved into what he is in the neighborhood that he's terrifying is predominantly African-American. You know, he wanted to make sure like this wasn't, you know, can we make a quote unquote villain in a horror movie in 1992, uh, a black man, you know, is that going to be conceived as like just this horrible, terrible thing? And the NAACP said, no, this is, this is fantasy. This is a, you know, this is a fun horror movie and they gave the appro- approval. There certainly was some controversy. There's there's some subject matter in Candyman that I think did come under some scrutiny playing on the stereotype of, of black men going after white women. But Try to come in and take your women. But I do think but, that uh, overall, Jesus. like at least to me, again, this is like me in my whiteness, like thinking, <laughs> you know, that this movie like hit all the right notes. I mean, to me, like I did, you know, I thought I think I find it to be like this sort of like plays as a good horror movie, but is also sensitive and and at the same time showing like a realistic portrayal, but at the same time like doing this fantasy horror movie and like sort of walking that fine line delicately, but but successfully. And it shows how things have evolved and how they have changed in some ways, but also you know, pretty much Cabrini Green is a segregated community, but. It's also showing how, when we get into the plot of, of Candyman, how Candyman is viewed from both a black and a white perspective. Like, one, he is something to be feared. And from another, he's kind of like this novelty thing that's not taken very seriously. Oh, like from the white perspective. Yeah. Like this sort of urban, it's just a fun, folky urban legend. Yeah, and 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 the people of Cabrini-Green... I mean, there's there's graffiti, there's and I love that aspect too. Just like as an aside, like the the art aspect, you know, that Candyman was an artist, and that there's so much graffiti and awesome graffiti um, throughout this. But that Candyman is something to be feared. He's the mythical manifestation of the real life 
uh, fears and horrors that exist in, um, you know, the everyday lives of people in Cabrini Green. Well, and yeah, and just even the beginning where they're interviewing people when they interview the the woman who's white, she's kind of, she's saying in a playful way, even though she's yeah. saying this terrible story, like, oh, it was like my friend or so-and-so's cousin got murdered. Yeah. But when they talk to the the African-American lady, she's like, gets real serious and, yeah. and it's like... I don't know anything about that, but you can talk to my friend who lives there. And, and I just love that, that just even that is a way to kick off the plot. You know, it's, I, I love that that's how it drives a story and gets in even Virginia Madsen and her friend's uh, thesis is going, you know, Virginia Madsen's angle is that uh, she is saying that the African-American community is using Candyman as a way to, sort of deal with their everyday struggle like mm-hmm. it's a you know a manifestation of their struggle like they're it's a way to cope basically and I love that it's it's constantly a, like a driver in the story and and I think that's why by the time we actually see Candyman which isn't you know a good 40, 40 yeah, yeah 40 45 minutes into the movie we already almost have this like in our own imagination we've gotten these two different perspectives of who he is and what he embodies it's like interesting to me when we actually see you know what Candyman's about and we see him on screen because they've already kind of built something up in my head you know of like what this figure is and what he represents and isn't it I'm I'm terrified just by people talking about Candyman in the first 40 minutes of this movie and and we'll get to the relationship between Virginia Madsen and Can- and Candyman but he is so much more um epic than even epic and terrifying than what you um or at least what I um feel well, when when people are talking about him well, let's go to a clip of Virginia Madsen and Tony Todd, and then we'll get into their relationship. We'll also get into yeah, sort of how this movie was really a different kind of horror movie that came out in the 90s and get into some fun behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah. Do you believe in me? Keep away from me! I have the child. Allow me to take you or he will die in your place. Your disbelief destroyed the faith of my congregation. Without them, I am nothing. So I was obliged to come. And now, I must kill you. Your death will be a tale to frighten children, to make lovers cling closer in their rapture. Come with me and be immortal. The first half of this movie to me is kind of all this build up, giving you the legend of Candyman. I think this movie takes like a pretty drastic turn here. You know, I think the first half of it is this setup that I find to be really unique and, and fascinating and, and gets me real involved in Virginia Madsen's Helen character. Yeah. What's going on in her family with her friend and her husband, you know, who's like kind of like Flandering, and th- they give you a lot of information on on where she's at and where she's coming from and what her drive is. Um, but then it sort of just takes this like hard left turn of Candyman kind of like taking over her life and either making her what seemingly is to make her go crazy, like he's committing these crimes, killing people that she's been in contact with, and now it's looking like she's the one doing the killings. It's a very 
a sudden shift in the story. And I'm not saying I don't like it, but it, but it is like, it's a hard shift, but I think it's important because it becomes a movie of like the relationship between Tony Todd's Candyman and, and Virginia Madsen's Helen and how they're sort of intertwined and how she's sort of messed up the platform that he's had of scaring people within the projects because she's sort of like dismantling the Candyman legend, thus awakening, I guess, what I got out of it, this sort of long anger that he's had. Cause it didn't really seem like he was like killing a whole lot of people till she came poking around. And now like he, you know, he's, he's on sort of this rampage. Yeah. And how, you know, and it is, <laughs> it, but it is, it's like, again, it's like this hard shift. It like switches over to another story and kind of want to talk about that relationship, you know, of, of Helen and, and Candyman and how, this is I don't call it a love story but it is they're filmed in like these sort of sensual ways and the music and everything it's it kind of it's 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 just so different from your typical horror movie it does have a this movie really does take a hard left turn from kind of like a mystery to a straight-up slasher but even with being a straight-up slasher if if you're going to call it that there's really only three people that die in this movie which i don't know for slashers that's a pretty low pretty low body count but the relationship between virginia madsen's helen and tony todd's Candyman, the idea of a boogeyman for i mean which is basically what he is is seducing the main star is so interesting and adds such an intense depth that it's not necessarily like like Candyman could could kill Helen at at any point since she's the one that has cast doubt or has you know started telling people in Cabrini Green or at least one kid that you know Candyman doesn't exist since she is the reason that this doubt has begun why not just kill her well and this is where you know this is kind of open to interpretation if Helen is the reincarnation of of Candyman's love from when he was you know like we we heard from the clip before like how he was killed if that's what she's supposed to be or you know is like the woman that he was in love with the woman that he was in love with that yeah that was pregnant with their child or if when she hit her head or when she got hit in the head um, if that caused you know some sort of like brain damage that caused her to go crazy and she's really like the the killer what it depends on really how you take this. And, and I would hate to think that is the. I really hope it's not. And I, I don't. I don't. Feel, I feel like that would be <laughs> so lame. S- like and lamely explained at the end of the movie, yeah. if that was the case, like oh, it was all a dream. I the idea that they are the that she. I love using the word enthralled with with this with this because Candyman. You would kind of put up there with Dracula in some ways. That there's some reason. That, you know, Virginia Madsen comes under his spell and even her her best friend, played by Casey Lemons, when she sees Candyman and becomes his victim, you see the moment where she kind of just goes into this trance as, as soon as she sees him and, you know, very willingly dies. I mean, doesn't offer herself up, but offers no fight. And I was trying to look at this you know watching this a few times the only times it seems like helen is fighting against candyman is when she's been pumped up with drugs i think and when she's put in the psychiatric ward when people are convinced that she's the one that's killing people 
that that's the only time I feel like that she fights against him. Otherwise, otherwise she's completely under his, you know, hypnotic spell. For how long we have to wait to actually see Candyman, the payoff to me is like pretty good. The the creation of Candyman, the way he looks, the way he sounds in this movie, it's it's kind of wild because he is intimidating but for the most part until later in the movie i mean we do see that he has like the hook for the hand and he has like the bloody stump but for the most part when we first see him he just kind of looks like a normal guy tony todd really does like a ton with this character like he 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 keeps him interesting and he is scary but not in in a way that other type slasher horror villains are where they have a mask or they have like, you know, makeup on. I mean, he doesn't really, I mean, there are, there are times where he's covered in bees, but for the most part, he just looks like, you know, how Tony Tony Todd does in real life. Between that voice, the fact that he is a very attractive man, very tall, just persona. I mean, I don't know. Even I would kind of overlook that like bloody hook stump because, um, I, I could see how a woman would fall under that thrall if you were to meet him, you know? Yeah, he does have, like, they're sort of playing on this, like, handsome Dracula-esque type. It's very Dracula. Yeah. And and also, uh, along with, like, Dracula or any of those, like, universal monster movies, all of the uh, those monsters are born out of some type of victimization. You know, it's not necessarily their fault that they've been turned into what they are. Yeah, it gives you, you do feel sympathy. I yeah. mean, you, when you connect to them on an emotional level, it's not just this sort of killing machine yeah. that so has no emotion. He's not exacting revenge for what he, you know, for what happened to him, but he is in existence because of what happened to him, yeah. but he's not exactly, I mean, he's not going out and just killing white slave owners. It's not like they exist anymore, right. but we, we empathize with him. And I think that that kind of goes hand in hand with this romanticizing this relationship um, between he and Helen. All he ever wanted was love. Kind of makes sense that he is looking for that love again. And even though it is through somewhat of, force i mean not not really like he's not forcing helen but he's saying you're you're going to do this he strongly suggests he's very strongly suggesting when i think too that it does there is like sort of a like again it's like it is sort of like gothic love tale yeah very Um, very gothic yeah and uh want to make mention too uh before we we should wrap this up pretty soon but um virginia madsen i think really does a tremendous job here of bringing us into the world of of Helen and how she operates and making us really kind of like believe that she the most fascinating thing on the planet for her is to find out if the candy man exists like that it's like her mission and she's kind of taking us on a mission through you know the projects of Cabrini Green through mm-hmm. like her university and how you know and how trying trying to develop this project it it really to me uh she makes she makes the first part of the movie worth it like there's a lot of exposition in the beginning of the movie but I don't find it boring I find it all interesting because I'm I'm wanting to learn right along with Virginia Madsen's character like to find out you know what what is this deal with Candyman like what's going on she has kind of the same 
mystique or like just this like beautiful kind of aura around her in the same way that Candyman does too. Like she is what keeps you engaged and she's becoming obsessed with the idea of Candyman and, and knowing about this, this legend, but you don't even realize that that's what she's devolving into because you're right along there with her and she has kind of brought you so sneakily into yeah. this journey like right along with her and though she plays uh only in like the first half hour of the movie casey lemons she is kind of playing the let's be smart about this let's the like, grounding you know, figure the, yeah the 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 person that's like trying to make sense out of all this yeah where you know she's like what the audience is thinking like you know you want to think about this for a second let's not go <laughs> in there is. let's like not you know what I mean? is, yeah. let's let's protect ourselves like if we're gonna go you know let's think about this in like a way that to where we stay safe and and by doing that i think it allows at least me personally to get more into a movie because there is a a person there who's like what an audience feels like don't go in there yeah you know there's someone that's actually there saying don't go in there you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah this is not good this is not a good idea or if you're gonna go in there i, I you're giving you five minutes and that's yeah. it you know so I think it always helps in a horror movie to have someone that's using a little bit of common sense so that that way um, the characters just don't fall into the sort of same cliche of like, uh, you know, you lose interest because you're just like, well, yeah, these characters deserve to die because they're just acting so, you know, stupid and unintell- making unintelligent decisions. Oh, man. We don't have to get to this now, but there's only one person I feel like that dies in this movie and there's only three or four that that die in this movie. There's only one that I feel is, deserves it. We can get get yeah. to that in a little while. Um, so before we get out of here uh, on our discussion with Candyman, we want to hit on two quick things that are pretty cool about this production. Uh, one being the uh, usage of very real live bees, and um, how exactly Virginia Madsen looks so hypnotized whenever she would be around Candyman. I'll answer that last one. That's because Bernard Rose actually did hypnotize her. Which I find to be really bizarre. Crazy, right? And it's she so was crazy. like totally down for it. I guess she said in an interview like they stopped doing it after a while. Cause but it, it was like after quite yeah. a few times of doing it, yeah. And uh, and while a lot of people there, like Tony Todd said he'd have to wait before they did the scene for Bernard Rose to like hypnotize her and then she would be in this sort of like strange trance and you know, Hey, whatever you gotta do to get to make the scene look the best for the movie. I mean, she does look pretty out there, uh, in those scenes. Like, like she is in a trance, you know? So it, um, so effective, but really bizarre. It's pretty nutty to know that and go back and look at it. And I mean, she, the way that the, the shots are on her on like this, this film noir, like, you know, lighting just over her eyes and the rest of her face shrouded like that and the way that her eyes kind of look a little red and glassy it and knowing that she was hypnotized like it's crazy and adds a whole other depth to it and I mean kind of feels a little violating but she was down for it but she did get to a certain point where I think it was she didn't remember an entire day of shooting, and that's yeah. when she was like, you know what, I'm done. I don't want to do this again. 
like when we think about like oh those the struggles that actors make you know it's an easy joke to make like yeah. you know they make a lot of money and they get to be in movies and get to be famous but horror movie actors probably get paid less than yeah. you know big drama box office stars but a lot of times they have to go through more craziness uh it's not just acting in dramatic scenes tony todd i mean uh this guy had real real bees in his mouth Can you i mean that? real bees the, you know they they in his mouth. they didn't want to use digital bees because they just it wasn't going to look good the technology wasn't that great back then um i certainly think that they would never use real bees now if they were going to do this scene but um they had a bee keeper there and this guy would take i guess supposedly bees when they're only 12 hours old they no, no older than twelve yeah, hours they, old. They won't sting yet. They can't sting yet because they they're can, not, but it's not as venomous. Yes. So they would take these. Uh, it was like, was it therom- Was it pheromones? Like pheromones. Pheromones no. from from the queen bee, and basically rub it on Virginia Matson's face or rub it on Tony Todd, and the other bees would basically protect the human versus like stinging it because they thought that it was a queen bee and so they would just kind of like all like crawl all over their body so they have hundreds of bees on them but uh the scene where tony todd is about to kiss virginia madsen's character and bees come pouring out of his mouth uh they actually put like this sort of contraption in his mouth so that it would like the bees wouldn't go down his throat and they kind of like let his mouth full up with bees and then he closed it and then when he opens it that those are real bees coming out. That's like a real it's insane, <laughs> real practical, crazy effect. And uh, yeah. I think something like he made some deal where he said he was going to get like a thousand dollars for every bee sting, and he ended up getting you know I don't know he got stung like I think you know quite a few times actually over the course of like Candyman and and the subsequent sequels. I think it was like around twenty three or five yeah. somewhere around that. But and, yeah, I don't know. It's just a. Uh, that would be the one thing where it's just like if I was an actor and and they're like, so there's a scene where uh, <laughs> these bees are going to come pouring out of my mouth. Is that that's just something we're going to do in post production, right? You know, it's just like uh, the minute they said no, we're actually we've got as soon as they start saying like we we got this guy, he's like a professional beekeeper. I'm just like, you know, let me stop you right there. I can't do this movie. I mean, but completely amazing that they that they were willing to do this and down for it and i think the production or like the the budget for this movie was five million so it's not like everyone was being paid in you know an extreme amount of money that's like the budget for the whole production that includes like cast budget and also with the bees virginia madsen found out that she was allergic to bees and and went for it anyway (laughs) went for it yeah they said they had like a paramedic there like ready to to help out but Which that is great yeah. but still a little terrifying so having heard this information it makes me appreciate those scenes totally ten times more and I, I i did learn this too in the research that uh virginia madsen was be you know because of all of this work and respect and finding out that she had an allergy you know towards bees there was a final scene that was shot that was cut from the movie where um, she, it's like a zoom into Candyman's lair after she's kind of become the, or you understand that she has become Candyman or Candywoman. Um, and her entire head is covered in thousands of bees and her eyes open, right? And it's a super dramatic shot. And she was so proud of it. And that got cut from the movie. 
God. I know. But it's worth mentioning because she was super proud of it. And I cannot imagine having my any part of my body, let alone my entire head being covered. And she said, too, that they were like starting to like drip down into like what she was wearing. And Tony Todd, having them in your mouth. I couldn't do it. I want to believe that I could do it. But yeah, pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's let's stop there. Let's move on to our picks of the week. Uh, we'll come back with some final thoughts on Candyman before we wrap everything up. But we should move on to to our other Clive Barker selections. Clive Barker fun filled fantasy this episode. So I'll kick this one off. Um, my pick of the week was Clive Barker's uh, Lord of Illusions. Now this is one that uh, he wrote and directed himself. He did three movies as a writer-director, Hellraiser, Nightbreed, and then this was his last one. I think of the three, this is his most straightforward uh, movie. Um, It does have a lot of the same sort of like ghastly imagery that he's been known for to to put in his movies. And there's certainly a few scenes like that in this movie. But I think as far as like it staying more in the reality-based world, more so than Hellraiser and Nightbreed, the plot is relatively simple it's about this um cult group and they're dabbling in black magic they have a leader of the cult who seems to be growing more powerful and in the beginning we've come to understand that some of the people in this cult are against him now because he's going to sacrifice this uh teenage girl so a couple of people that are against the leader of the cult band together and they seemingly kill do away with him in a very kind of crazy graphic way. Um, then, but na- So now we're cutting to, I think it's something like 12 or 13 years later, and the main guy who, who killed the cult leader also dabbles in black magic, has become one of the world's uh, most renowned illusionists. Um, he's sort of like the... I guess like a modern time David Blaine or if you're old, if you're as old as I am, like a David Copperfield type character. And he does these like big, huge, gigantic shows like all over. And he's living in Los Angeles. Well, now we have this sort of uh, character that enters the scene and that's played by Scott Bakula. And he's a, a detective that specializes in the dark arts. Like he has a nose for this stuff, you know, like culty type stuff, exorcisms only in a uh, movie like this, where there be a private eye that, that specializes in this kind of thing. But anyway, he's, uh, you know, kind of down on his luck. He's been messed up from some of the cases that he's been getting into. So uh, his boss sends him out to sunny LA to clear his head. Your and, air uh, quotes are really killing yeah, me yeah, right you now. Like that? You like that? <laughs> Uh, his boss sends him out to sunny LA to clear his head and work on a case. It doesn't seem like it's going to be very crazy, but, uh, he ends up getting mixed up in this cult business that has something to do with the illusionist and the history that happened 13 years ago. Well, anyway, the main illusionist that killed the cult leader, uh, he goes by the name of Swan has a wife that kind of like hires, uh, Scott Bakula's character to, find out a little bit more about this guy that uh, her husband did away with 13 years ago. And while he's investigating, he comes to find out a little bit about the cult, cult, a little bit about the history. At the same time, uh, he gets invited to the show 
uh, to see her husband do one of his big illusion tricks and uh, her husband ends up dying in the middle of the show. It's a pretty actually kind of crazy graphic scene where it's one of those deals where like the audience thinks it's part of the show and then he's like getting stabbed and all of a sudden they realize like it's this isn't something's not going right and it kind of gives you that intense feeling of like you would possibly this is something that could be that would be terrible to like witness you know like a a big huge production show gone wrong but that basically kicks off the story in overdrive where scott bacula and swan who died doing his show's wife uh kind of get together the movie kind of drifts a little bit they kind of have like a little bit of a romance I, I personally, that's the kind of stuff in these kind of movies that I think you could kind of take out, but I feel like that's Clyde Barker's thing to sort of like mix in a little bit of a love story with his, with his horror scripts and whatever. I think for this movie, it, it doesn't work as effective as it does in like a movie like Candyman because it, it's kind of played like really fast and loose and doesn't really seem to fit. But anyway, he, uh, ultimately finds out that Swan has faked his death. This guy's like fakes his death like two times in this movie. It's kind of crazy. Um, but you really, but I like the way that this movie, it's original in a sense that it plays with the notion of black magic. It plays with the notion of illusions and trickery and like, it's kind of like at that supernatural element to it, but something magic is something that you never really see in movies too much. Like it's a movie about magic. Generally when I hear it's a movie about magic too. And I think you feel the same way. It's not something I'm like clamoring. I'm like, Oh, another movie about magic. I got to make sure I put that up there. High on my like, you know, cue list. I got to watch that one. So it's like, that's probably what you know, the reason why it's like, it's a movie I didn't see till like, you know, just like three weeks ago, but overall the movie is uh it's not really scary, but I think it's like a fun entertaining movie. If it's one that you haven't, uh, scene. It's not a bad one to revisit. And if you're like me and you are a completist and you, you're like, you know what? I've seen the other two Clive Barker movies that he wrote and directed. I need this one to check off my list so I can round these out. Uh, now's a perfect time to do so. I was very happy to watch this one. Uh, Scott Bakula is goofy and adorable. Moms love him. And, and I think he's also safe to and that you know that he's not going to die like you yeah. know from minute one well you went with another Clyde Barker movie I and that's uh, his second outing as a writer director for Nightbreed mm-hmm. what can you tell me about Nightbreed well one thank you for bringing it up to me because I'm really happy that I that I watched this one before this episode I had never seen Nightbreed and I think it was because the cover really never spoke to me because I was definitely aware of this movie but the cover it was just there are too many monsters atop a fiery background in front of a cemetery it just looked like it was trying too hard to put it all out there but I was totally wrong I judged a VHS by its cover and it is truly a unique underworld epic endeavor that may just have been kind of ahead of its time So this Clive Barker film doesn't go for jump scares. There is a ton of blood, but it's not a gore movie. There is a serial killer, but it's not a slasher. It's intense and horrific special effects dominate all throughout, but yet you're not terrified. And there are monsters, but they're the characters with whom you identify. 
So this doesn't really sound like a run-of-the-mill movie, right? These unusual choices for a horror movie are what make it so awesome, but are also what I think worked against it when it was released in 1990. Clive Barker's uh, film before this was 1987's Hellraiser, which was an imaginative flesh fest of a film about the perverse punishment of a man who escaped an underworld of carnal pleasure and pain. And for the most part, it diverted from the norms of horror movies at the time, uh, which resulted in like mostly favorable critical praise if you could stomach your way through the movie. In Nightbreed, this netherworld of demons is kind of an extension from that a little bit almost the culture behind the demons, but maybe a little kinder, I would say, than the um, feeling behind Hellraiser. But critics didn't really know what to make of it, and neither did the production studio when, when it came out. The plot follows Boone, played by Craig Schieffer, who's a stud muffin of a man who suffers from nightmares about a demon world beneath a cemetery called Midian. He's only told two people about his nightmares, his girlfriend, played by Ann Bobby, and his therapist, Decker, who is played by the renowned body horror cinema master, David Cronenberg. I'm sure you've probably or seen or heard or something of one of his movies. Um, he's I really like Cronenberg. Fairly early on, we understand that Decker... Cronenberg is murdering people who have any ounce of the nightbreed lineage within them, one of whom is Boone, because he's repulsed by the idea of their acceptance and existence in the world. Decker frames Boone for the murders, which leads him, Boone, and the police all to Midian, in turn putting the nightbreed living below the cemetery in danger of larger exposure. And Boone is the only one who can save the nightbreed folks demons, whatever, the night breed, um, and create a safe haven for these species to not be persecuted by humans and continue their lives in the shadows of secrecy, like they have been for years. Nightbreed really flips the idea of who is the real evil on its head, like human or demon. And just like in Hellraiser, the true evil person is the human, not the outsider or the others. And there is kind of like this thinly veiled metaphor of queerness hinted at in the movie. Um, the idea of otherness or the fact that there's these like redneck townsfolk who are called the normies. Like they're the ones that are fascinated by what they're afraid of, but still persecute it. And these this nightbreed... Um, of people are forced to live on the fringes of society. And they're also the ones with enemies, but yet they are not the enemy. People like these normies dream of having nightbreed superpowers like flying, you know, existing in smoke. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? Um, immortality, things like that, but yet are afraid of anything they don't understand and resort to persecution. But while there are a few thematic similarities between Nightbreed and Hellraiser, the spirit behind both greatly differs. In Hellraiser, the monsters relish in pain, um, demons to some, angels to others is what's said in the movie. But in Nightbreed, the monsters seek to protect themselves from humans who are the true evildoers. It's really so unlike most other monster movies, whether it was in 1990 or before or even now, really. And due to its oddness and flipping the conventional ideas of monsterhood, it was faced with an inordinate amount of reshoots, studio interference and unsupportiveness, improper marketing, 
all kind of resulting in the movie being in and out of theaters in the blink of an eye. Clive Barker wasn't really pleased with the final original theatrical release, which in subsequent years has resulted in an extended version, director's cut, and even actually a soon-to-be-released third version, which is rumored to clock in at three hours, which is about an hour of additional footage, which is kind of crazy because the movie's already epic as it is. So Nightbreed really does stick out amongst other horror movies. You feel at home in this monster underworld of caves and rickety bridges and blind corners of darkness housing some creature you've never even thought to imagine. Yes, it is horror, but the only parts I truly find scary are Cronenberg's Decker character because he's the real creeper serial killer in this weird zipper bag mask hacking up innocent people, not the Nightbreed folks. And as with any Clive Barker film, the prosthetics, makeup, puppetry, body morphing are all kind of top-notch and imaginative. And on top of all of this, Danny Elfman is a musical genius and did the original score for the movie and adds the utmost amount of depth and dramatics to every scene. So I know I should wrap this up, but quick aside, and maybe I'm looking too hard into this, but there are some... I always got to bring it back to this, and I'm sorry... But there are some hefty similarities between this and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV show. And it's really weird. One, Boone looks like Angel, who's David Boreanaz, even when he morphs into a demon. And the world of Midian is basically the Hellmouth of Sunnydale. They're saving people from death with a bite and a plethora of monsters that we see in Nightbreed. I mean, it's like... Joss Whedon got all of his inspiration from this movie, even with Lord of Illusions, too. I noticed there's this like brain fingering scene um, that is really similar to the demon, like the 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 big bad in, in season five of Buffy Glory. Um, I don't know. I'm just saying I know I'm a Buffy nerd, but man, these things like stick out and I love it. But it's just super similar and I really want to ask Joss Whedon if I'm right or if I'm completely off base. <laughs> I just love that only that uh it took you this many episodes to like totally nerd out on Buffy. It's like thirty nine episodes <laughs> till you're just like smashed through that wall. You're like, here's the deal. Well I watch Nightbreed and <laughs> I love it. I love it. I mean just some of those demons I'm like, I'm pretty sure I saw this one in like season yeah. six. Fairly certain. When I was recently watched Nightbreed after you know you were gonna do it yeah I read an interview that Clyde Barker said he was like trying to make the the Star Wars of monster movies I think is what he said and I totally get that in watching it it does have this very like like you said like this epic yeah look and feel and like this whole world seems to have existed for a long time everything seems lived in and old like these are the monster characters that like you want action figures of not because they're so you know terrible or such good villains or something it's because like they look really cool and like you know a little bit about yeah. who they are as, as a demon yeah the movie has a really cool look to it too and i yeah i forget danny elfman did that score it's an awesome score yeah right yeah anyway i love our picks of the week i guess we um i guess we could say we're kind of fans of clive barker a little yeah. bit yeah yeah I was not a fan when I was younger. I just like I don't know. It just I think I was just wanting my 
horror and slasher type stuff to be kind of just like cut and dry but <laughs> yeah this is a uh, I've, I've grown to really appreciate Clyde Barker's like moody moody horror he he adds a lot of uh sexuality and depth yeah I'll, I'll say that yeah well those are our picks of the week Clyde Barker's Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions hope you enjoyed that here's your Murray moment Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shut? Flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. There's no shortage of Chicago stories involving Billy Murray. The man was born and raised in Wilmette. And coincidentally, actually, as was Candyman's Virginia Madsen, she went to high school right down the street from where the Murray boys uh, caddied at the Indian Hills Country Club. Um, That is an aside. Okay. Wilmette is just a few miles north of the neighborhood Old Town, which is where Second City is located, the place wherein Billy honed his acting talents. It's also an area which borders what was once Candyman's neighborhood, Cabrini Green. And one facet of Candyman's character, something that was always striking to me, I mentioned before, is that he was an artist and the remarkable amount of graffiti in the movie. And that before he became Candyman, he was a respected artist by, you know, respected by all the racist white folk that oppressed him at the time. And while his story might be incredibly tragic and unfortunate, um, it did kind of goose me into thinking about art for this Murray moment. And I thought it rather ironic that Billy has offhandedly mentioned that it was a portrait um, of a young girl that he saw a while back that saved his life at one moment in time. So picture this. Billy Murray... It's the early 1970s, and he's hanging around with his brother Brian, who had become a fixture at Second City. Billy's testing the waters, you know, kind of seeing if acting is his thing after he's been kind of flitting around, not really knowing what he's doing with his life, but he's he's gotten into these acting workshops, like that sort of thing. He finally musters up enough courage to be on stage, his first big chance to be noticed, and Billy completely bombs. Back when I started in Chicago, I wasn't very good, Billy admits. And just imagine that moment on stage, Billy's body heat rising, knowing he's sucking in front of all of these eyes on him. Just think about it. I was so bad. I walked straight out onto the street and I just started walking. I walked for hours and I realized I'd walked in the wrong direction and not just in terms of where I lived, but in terms of a desire to stay alive, Billy admitted. And if you've ever been on stage acting in a band, Justin, I know I'm sure you've experienced this, but any type of performance and you bomb, like like soul-crushingly bomb, like it's just a bad night, you'd generally just rather die um, than have to continue enduring that experience. And many times you just got to keep on trucking through it. 
So Billy leaves the stage, the entire venue, and just walks south, past Cabrini Green, through the city. He just wanted to die in that moment, not knowing what what was ahead of him in his life. And realizing that feeling after he'd been half-heartedly trying to fit into random jobs, after he'd been giving this acting thing a go and he fails, he just wants to give up. So I figured if I was going to die where I am, I might as well, you know, go towards the lake. Maybe I'll float for a while after I'm dead, he said of the experience. So he's walking, he turns left, and eventually he runs into Michigan Avenue. And he thinks, okay, well, this runs north and south. I'll uh, head north. And eventually he found himself in front of the Chicago Art Institute. And this was back when it was just based on donations, no admission. And I just walked straight through, he said. I just wanted to die. I didn't care. I felt like I was dead. And pretty soon, he was struck by a painting called The Song of the Lark, which is a portrait of a woman by Jules Breton, which depicts a French peasant girl stopping to take in an early moment of birds singing as the sun rises. It's supposed to embody a nostalgic feeling of French peasants deserting farm life for more urban areas and being replaced by new machinery in the fields. And it's a nod to a vanishing past, a sentimental look back at something that was actually really tough work. So I saw this girl, but there's this girl who looks like she doesn't have a lot of prospects. But the sun's coming up anyway, and she's got another chance at it, Billy said, remembering the experience. And I figure I, too, am a person, and I get another chance every day the sun comes up. And we all have another chance, no matter how much we mess up, as long as the sun comes up. And hell, even Candyman, he died, and he still came back to seek retribution. Sure, everyone has a few false starts in life, Billy included. It's not like he went back on the stage and was immediately a star. Of course, he worked at it. It was within him the whole time. But it was that nostalgic portrait of a young woman that brought about this inspiration that he needed to keep going. I like the connection on this one a lot. <laughs> it's a little little Chicago in there. That whole talk you were talking, asking me about bombing, though, I don't know what that's about. I've never bombed it. But I'm, just <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, you don't know anything. <laughs> I, I know I have bombed more than a few times yeah. when playing drums on stage. It's an awful feeling. Yeah. The first time I ever played a show live, I will go to my grave remembering how awful that experience was. Yeah. And a guy with Liberty Spikes just standing there with his arms crossed, like staring me down like I'm the worst drummer that's ever existed. Oof. Yeah, it was tough. <laughs> I had a couple rough first shows. I'm not going to share those stories. That's I don't right. even like to think about them. I barfed on myself one time yeah. during a set. Oof. That was pretty. S- <laughs> well, I'm glad Bill Murray didn't give up. He didn't. Nope. Well, thanks for that Murray moment. Of course. Do we have any, uh, did you have any final thoughts on Candyman? I know one thing I wanted to say before we wrap it up totally, um, the score to Candyman by Philip Glass, I think is excellent. And it really is, uh, Philip Glass has done some really great work. Mainly he, most of the movies he's composed scores for are on the artier side and certainly no horror whatsoever. Yeah, he's not really known for that. And, uh, 
this movie doesn't really have a horror movie type score. It has like almost a, because uh, there's a lot of like chorus voices. Mm-hmm. It kind of has like a, uh, almost a Christmas movie type like score gothic. to me. Or, gothic yeah, gothic Christmas. or like, yeah, or like, um, like you know, religious yeah. in a way, like something yeah. you would hear in church. But it really fits for this. And I think it does make the movie almost scary in a way because the music isn't going to tell you what's going to happen. Like you're not getting that booming music that's going to suggest something scary is about to happen. The movie or the music isn't really suggesting what's going to happen in this. It just adds atmosphere. So I I really appreciate the music in this. It's so haunting. And it's, yeah, starts out from the opening credits on and I and I like how much it's used in the movie too, because I I think it's the music is as much of a character as any of the actors in the movie. Yeah, Philip Glass, even though he felt like he was somewhat duped. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't think he was. Uh, I think when he saw finally saw the final film, he was like, "What?" And and because this wasn't a movie that he was. Um, you know, playing beat for beat too, where they watch it. So I don't think he really saw. Yeah. Kind of what kind of movie he was scoring, you know, they I you know, they'd kind of let him go off and and yeah. I, I think it like yeah, with the final production, he was he was kind of like, yeah, I didn't I didn't want to do like a straight horror movie, but I think it works. I think it, in the last 20 years he's softened a little bit on that and yeah. it's finally been like, okay, I still get, you know, royalty checks from this. I'm I'm yeah. I'm chill with it now. But it's on uh, <laughs> it's on Spotify. You can hear it. I was listening to it uh earlier today Ooh, and, ha- uh, what a good halloween yeah. soundtrack too and uh yeah it's like very strange you know just like like pulling into somebody <laughs> in my van like in a target parking lot when you're like blasting like the Candyman soundtrack in your van you know and they're just like yeah it's very strange you know the, the looks that you get <laughs> wow and that van with no windows bl- yeah. blasting yeah. uh candy man just soundtrack. like a lot of Justin. voices going you get some unusual looks what was well, your final thought on Candyman? Um, the final sequence is Helen's dead, and she's kind of assumed the idea of she is Candyman now, and she finally gets her revenge on her cheating, no good husband that never deserved her. Candyman deserved her more than her friggin' stupid boyfriend did, who was cheating on her the whole time with one of his students. He sucked. And so she goes back in for one more scare and he's like, I guess why it's even better is because not only does she gut him from groin to gullet, but he's sad. He's sad and he misses her. And he's like, what am I doing with this like college co-ed here? Um, he says her name five times in the mirror. Like Candyman. And she appears and she gets him. Anyway, oh, man, I guess I have so many... St- silly final thoughts the um last one and i should ask you this too justin okay um at helen's funeral i think it's an incredibly touching moment and one of one of the two moments i cry in this movie is when all of i mean what's assumed that is a lot of the community of cabrini green comes to helen's grave oh for saving the baby yeah because helen i mean they know that she was not the killer the whole time and yeah. the right it yeah, is that that's that's what that's what i get out of it yeah and so i don't know why they would show up if they didn't well okay because it's to me it's a little like why are you gonna drop a hook in her yeah, grave it's it's 
Like, are you saying in case Candyman comes to get you in the afterlife? Or is it just like, I don't know. Or is it because respect? Yeah, you that's, know? that's what I took it as like a, yeah, like a respect type thing. Yeah. But maybe, 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 maybe not. But there's, a, but there's a suggestion that, but that they, she's, you know, become yeah. like. Um, she's become part of the mythos yeah, of, of yeah. Candyman. And I feel like the, if, if there was ever any question whether it was Helen lost her mind or if Candyman actually existed, it was, uh, I feel like along with that therapist scene where Candyman and Helen and another person exist all in the same moment, um, also uh, where Helen's crawling out of the bonfire with the baby and the little boy sees a man burning in in the bonfire, like that that's Candyman. I, don't, I guess I feel like I really have to argue that Helen was not crazy for some reason that Candyman did exist. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's. I, I don't think that there's. I, I think it's. I think I think that Candyman exists in this. I don't. I think that there's just that play of her being crazy in the begin in the middle to kind of add more. Um, I guess I w- I really I want to. I feel I feel for Helen. I feel for Candyman. Yeah, no, I yeah. guess that's it. I, th- I think it's a it's a very uh it's a very sympathetic movie for the for the two leads. Yeah. I get some I get some tears churning up. Yeah. Another quick thing that we should mention too. You and I both watched um, the documentary that's right now on Shutter Horror Noir. Candyman is mentioned uh, a few times in that, and it's about the um, representation of African Americans in horror movies, which is super enlightening. Yeah, um, that's a great documentary. It's really awesome. And so, uh, yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's, you know, good time to check it out, especially if in reference to this uh, episode. Yeah, definitely reference to this episode from the beginning of of film until now. Um, yeah, it's definitely one to check out. And one last little thing with Candyman. This is a movie that really wasn't available on many streaming services, but as luck would have it, Netflix just recently added it to their streaming. So if you have Netflix and you don't own the movie or don't have another way to watch it, you can check it out there. Well, I think we should wrap things up. What do we got coming up next uh, Next episode here? Well, for our second Halloween installment, uh, our 40th, episode is our 40th it's, it's exciting it's awesome um and also the first remake that we'll be talking about yeah and remakes are not something that we're the biggest fans of but i think if you're gonna do a remake and you know if you're gonna modernize it and yeah and kind of try to improve on it or have your own little spin on it i think 1988's uh chuck russell's the blob did a pretty good job yeah i'm so stoked to talk about this one so that'll be next episode that's gonna be a lot of fun that's yeah. just a fun movie all around <laughs> it is. um so uh thanks so much for listening if you want to uh find out what we're up to on social media ever you can find us at don't push pause podcast on instagram and facebook and twitter if you want to contact us directly for any reason whatsoever we always like hearing from people at don't push pause podcast at gmail.com and you can always uh, check out uh, old episodes at don'tpushpausepodcast.com if you do listen to us on platforms which you can rate and review us please do we appreciate it uh, so much and um, if you can help spread the word um, it always helps a lot yes we really do appreciate it truly 
Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.